Welcome to the Abbott Circle podcast. I'm Father Ambrose Christ, and I'm the novice master here at St. Michael's Abbey. We hope that you enjoy the following recording. To learn more about the Norbertines, visit theabbotcircle.com. God bless you. Okay, welcome to our Zoom webinar. My name is Father Sebastian Walsh, for those who don't already know me, and we're very happy to have you here. We're coming to you from our new abbey here in Silverado Canyon. So uh, for those of you who don't know, we're Norbertine priests, Norbertine canons, strictly speaking, and our order was founded 900 years ago by St. Norbert on Christmas Day in 1121. So you're with us in our 900th year, 900th anniversary of the founding of our order. And we at St. Michael's have been here in Southern California since the late 1950s. We founded our first uh, property abbey in the early 60s, and then we've moved to our new property, the current property here in Silverado Canyon, just a couple months ago. So we're coming to you from our, our new abbey. And so you know something about the Norbertine order. Our order was founded as a clerical reform movement. In other words, there were problems with priests in the, in the medieval church. They weren't living holy lives. And St. Norbert was part of the reform of the priesthood at that time, which is an ever necessary um, good that the church has to always undergo, that, that reformation, that constant reformation and purification of the priesthood. So that's the purpose of our order. Um, we, we intend that reform of the priestly life, especially by means of the worthy celebration of the holy sacrifice of the mass, Eucharistic adoration, and life in community, life in common. So that's a little bit about the Norbertine order. And you see we wear these nice white habits, which are a sign of the angels of the resurrection. St. Norbert says we wear white because the angels of the resurrection who announce the resurrection wore white. And we're supposed to be announcing the resurrection of Christ to the whole world. So welcome to our new Abbey and to the Zoom seminar. So without further ado, let's begin. I want to talk to you today about how to make a good confession. And so the first thing to understand is what is the sacrament of confession and why should we go? Jesus established seven sacraments. And a sacrament is an outward, a sensible sign, which is instituted by Christ to give grace. And when you think about it, you realize that grace is something utterly beyond the power of human nature to attain by itself. Grace is actually a share in God's very nature. So if, if uh, to give an analogy or something like that, it'd be like this. If you had a little puppy dog and then you gave it a special power that it could think and reason like a human being and talk like a human being, well, that's kind of what happens. God gives his divine nature to us poor human beings, poor creatures, and we share in the divine nature. So grace is something infinitely above the capacity of, of human nature. In fact, it's infinitely above the capacity of even the highest angel by their own nature to attain. And therefore, if we're going to receive grace, it has to be by God's initiative. So then the next question is, how do we know that God's gonna give us grace? What is it that we do in order to receive grace? And the first thing is we have to obey God. God tells us, here's how I'm going to give you grace. He gave us these seven sacraments. And they're very nice sacraments because they're proportioned to our human nature. They're sensible. They're something very easy to do. All the sacraments, of course, begin with baptism. 
And when someone is baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, they receive at that moment the life of God in their souls. And they're also able to receive grace through the other six sacraments. You can't receive grace through confession or any of the sacraments unless you've already been baptized. So baptism is the gateway to all the other sacraments. And once you have that grace through baptism, then it happens, as typically happens in human life, that sometimes we sin after baptism. And confession is a remedy for that situation. So just to give you a little bit of an analogy, baptism is like birth into our new life. It's like birth into that life of God that he gives us. And then confirmation is like growing to maturity. It's like reaching spiritual adolescence. And then you have the Eucharist. That's like spiritual nutrition and food that makes us strong and healthy and helps us to grow in grace in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. But then it happens that just as with a natural body, sometimes we get sick and very sick. So we need to go to a doctor. So also we need a sacrament to restore grace in case we commit sin. And primarily we're talking about what's called mortal sin. Mortal sin is when you lose the life of grace in your soul through some act, some deliberate act where you break off your friendship with God. And then that's committing a mortal sin. So you lose the life of grace in your soul. But God in his great mercy knew that we're weak and even sometimes we're just malicious. And nevertheless, God wants to restore us to his friendship. He wants to restore us to his divine life and grace. And so he's given us another sacrament, the sacrament of confession, also known as the sacrament of penance or reconciliation. And that sacrament is necessary because we sin. And so that's the, the first reason why we should go to confession and what confession is for, okay? Now, I mentioned before that there's a distinction between sins. And, and I know a number of you have already asked that question. So what do we mean by a mortal sin? What do we mean by a venial sin? And, and how do I tell the difference between those two things? So a mortal sin, as I said, is an act which breaks off our friendship with God. Um, all of us have the experience of being friends with people. And sometimes we notice our friends annoy us, right? So our friends will do things like they'll just talk about themselves too much or um, they'll be inconvenient, they'll show up late and then we have to wait to go somewhere together or things like that. Those would be comparable to venial sins. They're annoying, they're, they're not, they show a lack of love for the friend and, and too much self-interest and things like that, but they wouldn't break off the friendship. But on the other hand, there are certain actions that you can do that are incompatible with loving your friend as for your friend's own sake. For example, um, if you were to say something extremely hurtful to a friend and, and accuse them of something, you know, by lying about them, or even maybe revealing something true that, that you should not have revealed about, you know, about your friend, some fault or problem of their past or something like that. So there are different ways that in our relationship with other human beings, we notice that these acts are fundamentally inconsistent with loving our friend for their own sake. We turn our friend into a useful good or we cease to love our friends altogether. Well, we can do the same thing with God. There are certain actions 
which are inconsistent or incompatible with loving God above all things. When I choose money over God, when I decide to do an act which is contrary to one of his commandments, right? A serious commandment, like you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, right? You shall keep the Sabbath day holy, all those different commandments our Lord gave us, right? There are certain actions which are incompatible with loving God above all things. Uh, another way you could sort of imagine that is, could you imagine doing this in heaven, being comfortable in God's presence, doing this act? That's a simple way to sort of figure out whether or not you think a sin is mortal or not, okay? So that's a, just a general description of the difference between a mortal sin and a venial sin. And strictly speaking, you're required to go to confession for mortal sins because those are the ones that the sacrament of confession is primarily instituted to, to remedy, to heal. You can also receive healing from your venial sins in other ways, through prayer, through holy water, for example. There are many other different ways that you can have remission of your venial sins, but mortal sins ordinarily are only forgiven in the context of the sacrament of confession. So that's primarily why you would go to confession. We all need to go to confession first and foremost if we find ourselves falling into a grave or a mortal sin. Okay, so that raises the next question. Why should we go to a priest for this? Why can't we go directly to God in order to have our sins forgiven? Doesn't God tell us to go and pray to him and ask for our sins to be forgiven? And the answer is yes. You can always go directly to God when you sin, no doubt about it. But when God himself tells us, here's what you should do when you sin in order to receive my forgiveness, then we should follow his instruction, right? We should obey him, right? To take an example in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Job, poor Job is suffering all these different things because the devil hates him and the devil wants to break him and, and cause him to reject God. And Job never does it. He suffers greatly, but he never rejects God. But then the devil instigates these friends of Job, these so-called friends of Job, to come in and, and to try and tell Job that it's really his fault, and he's sinned, and he's a terrible person, and that's why these things are happening to him, which is all false. And so at the end of the book, God reveals himself. And he says, you know, to Job, he says, look, you have to be patient and you have to realize that I'm the creator of heaven and earth and I know what I'm doing when I'm allowing you to suffer these things. So I expect you to be more patient there. But he wasn't angry with Job because Job had just had little venial sins and his, his not understanding why it was that he was suffering. But with regard to Job's friends, God was very angry with them because they were lying and they were not telling the truth. And so he says to them, he says, Go to my friend Job, and he will offer a sacrifice for you, and I will accept his sacrifice so that you'll be forgiven your sins, right? Now, you could have said, why didn't Job's friends just pray to God for forgiveness? Well, the answer is, even though they pray to God, God said, here's how I want you to receive my forgiveness through this other act. Now, Job is a sign or a figure of the priest in that case. The priest is the one God tells us to go to in order to have our sins forgiven. And that is based on Holy Scripture. Now, I wanna take you through the scriptures in order to manifest that fact. There's a very important passage 
in the Synoptic Gospels. It's found in all three Synoptic Gospels. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in Matthew chapter 9. It's in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. And that story is a story of the paralytic man. And Jesus is there. He's, he's in a house. He's in Capernaum. And he's teaching to a large group of people. And, and so many people wanted to come. They crowded inside the house. And then there was a huge crowd outside the doors of the house. So when these, um, this paralyzed man, his friends thought to themselves, well, Jesus is coming into town. We're going to bring our friend to Jesus so that Jesus will heal him. And so they, they brought their friend to Jesus. But they saw a huge crowd, and there's no way for them to get into the house and put the man before Jesus. So what did they do? They were very industrious and very daring, and they lifted their friend on on his mat to the roof, and they opened up the tiles and opened this big hole in the roof, big enough for a man to go down into, and they lowered him before Jesus. You can imagine how the owner of the house felt about that moment. But I'm sure somehow they, they paid him back and they, they probably went and fixed his roof for him afterwards. We don't read about that, but I'm sure they were very good people. So they probably did that. So they bring the paralyzed man and they set him before Jesus. And then there's a beautiful passage there. It says, Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the man who was paralyzed, though maybe his faith was included. It specifically refers to the faith of the man's friends. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Isn't that beautiful? So the first thing we see is that Jesus is forgiving sins in response to the faith of someone other than the sinner. Isn't that amazing? Already we see how God wills to use other human beings as instruments for the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't stop there. What happens next? The scribes and Pharisees who managed to get a seat inside, right? All four people were outside and the scribes and the Pharisees finagled their way inside. And they said things like this. He speaks blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So that's the question that we have before us. Can anyone other than God forgive sins? That's exactly what people are asking when they say, why don't I go to God alone to have my sins forgiven? Rather than, why would I go to a priest to have my sins forgiven? Because God alone can forgive sins. And, um, and in fact, I've even heard some Protestant pastor um, actually say, quote this passage of scripture in order to reject the Catholic teaching that priests can forgive sins. He says the scriptures say that God alone can forgive sins, and therefore we should never go to a priest. And, the, and uh, this pastor, he wrote that in an article. I wrote it back because a friend showed me the article. And I said, now you should read that carefully because that's that passage is from the Pharisees who are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. I would not quote scripture that way if I were you, right? You can do all sorts of things that way. You can quote the devil too in scripture. So that was not a very good citation from scripture. Huh? But what does Jesus say in response to that? Jesus looks at them and he says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk. Now, certainly it's harder to forgive sins than to perform a bodily miracle because healing the soul is a greater thing than healing the body. But it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see when someone's sins are forgiven. You can cover your tracks, so to speak. If I, I could say to, to Casey, your sins are forgiven. Maybe I have in confession before. 
In any case, you don't know the effects. You can't visibly see the effects. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say stand up and walk. But that you may know, this is Jesus speaking again. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the man, stand up and take your mat and go home. And he does. He's cured immediately. Notice the way Jesus put it. The scribes and Pharisees had said, only God can forgive sins. Now, here's what you kind of expect Jesus to say. I am God, and therefore I'm forgiving sins. See? But he doesn't say exactly that. It would have been true. But he says instead that you may know that the Son of Man has a power on earth. Not the Son of God in heaven. The Son of Man on earth has the power to forgive sins. What is Jesus doing there? He's referring to his human nature, the Son of Man on earth. And he's showing that even though he is God, even though he's both Son of Man and Son of God, that it's through his human nature, his sacred humanity, that he's forgiving sins. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God, the Son, can communicate to a human nature, in this case, his own human nature, the power to forgive sins precisely as an instrument of his divinity. So if Christ's human nature can be an instrument of divinity in forgiving sins, in principle, isn't it true that other human natures could? And that's exactly what we find Jesus doing. Fast forward now to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, it's right after Jesus has died and now he's risen from the dead. And the apostles are all gathered together. They're still afraid. And Jesus suddenly appears to them. And it says that he breathes upon them and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, why did the Father send Jesus? Among other things, he sent Jesus to forgive sins. So Jesus is saying, as the Father has sent me to forgive sins, so I send you. He breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Those whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. And those whose sins you hold bound are held bound. That's John chapter 20, right there in the Bible. So what's happening is Jesus, after having shown that it's through his human nature as an instrument that he forgives sins, now he goes on to communicate to other human natures, other human beings, the power to forgive sins, first to his apostles, and then to all those who were ordained as priests by his apostles, all the way down through the history of the church, so that the power to forgive sins might be available to all the faithful throughout all time. If Jesus had been selfish and just hogged that power to forgive sins to his own human nature, never shared it with any priests, well, it'd be very hard for the rest of us to receive the forgiveness of sins that way right? Because Jesus is in one place in one time, but there are thousands of priests, tens of thousands of priests in the world today, and all of them can be there and available for the faithful now, so that each priest is like another Christ for each person. And that's why the priest, when he forgives sins, he doesn't say, Jesus forgives you your sins. He acts in the very person of Christ, and he says, I absolve you from your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So now we see why it is that we should go to 
a priest, in addition to going directly to God, we go to God, we ask God for the grace of forgiveness and repentance. And it's possible if no priest is available, this sometimes happens that, that a priest is not available. People sometimes live very far from priests. And in those cases, God knows that, that you, even if you wanted to, you couldn't make it to a priest. And therefore, in a case like that, God could just directly forgive your sins. And he's willing to do that. We call that an act of perfect contrition. But since God wants us to go, just like he told the friends of Job to go to Job and, and ask him to offer a sacrifice for their forgiveness of sins. So also, God tells all of us to go to the priest in order that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. So you might see, why is that? There's a couple reasons why God might want to do that. The first reason is so that we can have certitude that our sins are forgiven. You know, just imagine, just think about your own experience. Um, when people have committed a serious sin in their life, and they wonder, is God forgiving me the sin? Am I sorry enough? Have I shed enough tears? Do I really know that God has forgiven me? Most people don't have God directly speaking to them audibly in such a way that they can hear God's voice speaking directly to them. And so what do they do? They feel uncertain. They feel afraid. They wonder if their contrition was ever enough. And God does not want us to be in that state. God wants us to know with certitude that our sins are forgiven. And that's exactly why he's given this power to human beings who can you can see and you can hear and, and know that you're being forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. And, um, and we don't need perfect contrition if we go to the priest. All we need is sorrow for our sins, even if we're just afraid of the punishment of hell. That is enough to go to confession. And St. Thomas Aquinas says that through the power of the absolution, by a miracle of God, whenever we confess, even if our contrition starts out imperfect, that at the moment of absolution, our imperfect contrition is turned to perfect contrition and we're truly sorry for our sins because we love God. And if you reflect on your experience, if you've ever gone to confession and you've been in a state where you're only going because you're afraid of being punished, and then you hear the words of absolution, reflect on your own soul, reflect on what's happened. You suddenly notice in your heart a newfound love for God. And you're amazed that God, by that miracle, through the absolution of the priest, forgave your sins and brought you to a state of perfect contrition, even though your contrition before was imperfect and out of fear. He converts your contrition into something perfect so that you might have love in your heart for God. So that's really very beautiful that God has given us the sacrament so we can know for a fact that we've been forgiven and we no longer have to fear that our sins have not been forgiven. Okay, so now a few um, questions that, um, that a lot of people have asked. So here's one question. Step by step, how do I make a good confession? What happens? What do I do to make a good confession? Okay, so it all starts with being aware that you've sinned. Right, And so the beginning of a good confession happens before you step into the confessional. The beginning of the confession starts by making an examination of conscience. And that is where you sit down in a quiet place. And then you go through in your own mind, in your own heart, through your past life, through your actions. And then 
you identify the places where you've sinned, especially areas where you think you may have sinned mortally, where you think your action is incompatible with loving God above all things. And that's called an examination of conscience. Now, there's some wonderful tools to help in an examination of conscience. Um, there are all sorts of online examinations of conscience. And usually the more detailed, the better. You know, I think Opus Dei has a wonderful online examination of conscience that you can print out or you can just look on on your phone or something like that. And, um, and usually it goes in one of two ways. Usually you go through like the 10 commandments. So you start off, you know, do you love God above all things? You know, are you praying? You know, do you keep the Lord's day holy, right? Do you, do you take the Lord's name in vain or do you use bad language, right? Do you honor your father and mother? You go through the 10 commandments and, um, and then there's different, you know, particular questions associated with each commandment. So for example, the fifth commandment says, you shall not kill. But also included in that is, don't hit people and get angry with them or hurt them physically, or don't even you know, be unreasonably angry towards them or, or speak to them harshly in an unreasonable way, right? Those are all examples of sins against the fifth commandment, albeit not as serious as actually murder. And also with the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, not only that could be a mortal sin, but also impure actions like fornication or impure actions with yourself, and, and looking at um, impure images and things like that, those would all be also included under the sixth commandment. And a good examination of conscience will have those details in them. So get a, a good detailed examination of conscience. Another way that sometimes an examination of conscience is done is in terms of the seven cardinal virtues. So that's another way you can say is anything that's against um, temperance, anything that's against fortitude, if I've been cowardly, is anything against prudence or justice, if I, have I stolen or have I been selfish, and things like that, okay? So um, online, there are many good tools, and like I said, I think there's a good one from Obus Day, but you can search online and find some many good examinations of conscience. So that's step one, to make a good confession. Step two, for making a good confession, um, you have to now arouse contrition in your heart. And that's one of the questions that people ask too. How do I make sure that I have as much contrition as I ought to have? Well, first of all, how much contrition should you have? You should be so sorry for your sin that in your heart, you never want to commit it again. You really detest it. You have a sense of loathing for that sin. That would be the best kind of the most perfect kind of contrition you could have. And the question is, how do I arouse that in my heart? Because sometimes I just see um, a sin that I've done, and I, and I, in my mind, I'm like, I shouldn't have done that, but there's not a lot of sadness or sorrow associated with that. And so I want to give you some help in order to, to intensify your contrition. So first, I'll tell you a story. So um, once my goddaughter, one of my goddaughters, before I joined the Abbey, I had a few, few um, goddaughters that um, God graced me with. And one of my goddaughters, she's about eight or nine years old at this time, and she was standing in line for confession. I remember I witnessed this, and she was crying. She was so sad. She was crying. And a, a, a gentleman next to her, an adult next to her, said, little girl, why are you crying? She says, because of my sins. And he said, well, you couldn't have done anything that bad. And she said to him, which was so beautiful, the wisdom of a saint, she said, you just don't understand how bad sin is. 
you know, and all of us have to realize, like, even though she had the sins of an eight-year-old child, she understood that sin, even venial sin, is an offense against the all-good God. And you know the reason why we're not truly sorry for our sins the way we should be? We don't understand how good God is. Later on in life, you know, sometimes often children, when they look back on the way they treated their parents, um, later on as adults, they become much more sorrowful over the things they did. I think about my own life. I remember a couple times when I yelled at my dad. And it was only when I did it at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal because I was a stupid kid, you know, and I didn't understand how good my dad was and how much good he had done for me. And only later in life when I understood, I, I totally underestimated how much good my dad had done for me and how much he loved me. Only then did I have contrition proportionate to the sin that I had committed. Well, when we see God face to face, and we see how good he is, only then will we understand how great a thing sin is. Even the smallest venial sin should cause great tears in our heart, in our, in our eyes. So that's one thing, to recognize God's goodness. Well, how do we recognize God's goodness? And how do we see kind of objectively what our sins have done to God? We look to Jesus in his passion. In his whole, this holy season of Lent, it's especially profitable all times during the year, but especially during Lent, to meditate upon Jesus and his passion, Jesus in the agony in the garden. Um, during that time in the agony in the garden, he experienced psychologically the suffering and pain associated with the commission of every sin in the history of the world. You can't imagine how much he suffered. His love was infinite and therefore his suffering was unmeasurable. He, he suffered at the loss of every soul. He suffered at every sin that we ever committed. He knew all those sins. And as a result of that, he suffered intensely psychologically inside of his soul in the agony of the garden, so much so that it actually caused him to physically start bleeding. His sweat became as drops of blood, we read. And then he was scourged on the pillar, terrible scourging, you know, and the... Um, the Mel Gibson Passion of Christ, it shows it's probably the only movie that actually shows something like what Jesus underwent in the scourging. And then after that, he was crowned with thorns. And the thorns were so, so painful, some of them even seemed to pierce his skull, go into his brain. They were so terrible, this, this crown of thorns. I think it was St. Rose of Lima was given the experience of feeling a single thorn from the crown of Jesus's thorns. And she was in agony. She immediately went unconscious. It's such a terrible pain. And then he, he had to take the terrible long way of the cross where he fell several times. And he, he was weak from loss of blood and they still pushed him onward. And then finally he died on the cross after three hours of suffocation, agonizing suffocation, his hands and his feet, the most sensitive parts of the body nailed to the cross. And then finally he died there giving up his last breath, giving up his spirit. So when we meditate upon the sufferings of Jesus and that, that all those sufferings were a result of our sins, and each one of us can claim some contribution, we're all responsible for some of Jesus's suffering. And even if we were the only sinner in the world, he would have gone through all of it for us. So when we meditate upon Jesus's suffering on the cross, that causes a deepening of our own contrition. So that's the second thing we do. First, an examination of conscience. Second, 
a deepening of our contrition, especially through meditating upon the goodness of God and the passion and suffering of Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross. Then what do we do? Then we actually go. Now that we have our sins in hand and we go to ask forgiveness, we go to the priest. And sometimes there's a line. So sometimes you have to wait in line because there are other people who want to go to. And then you finally go into the confessional. Here's how you start. You say, the priest usually begins with the sign of the cross. He says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? And then you begin and you say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. You just make a general statement that you're a sinner. And then you say, it's been so long since my last good confession. So let's say it's been three months or six months or a year or 10 years. You say, it's been this long since my last confession. And these are my sins. And then you just start to list the ones you can remember. Okay. Now, um, if the first thing you want to focus on is the serious sins or any sins that in your mind um, you think are, are, were very harmful to others or to yourself. And when you do that, you want to say the number of times you committed each sin, and you want to confess it in sufficient detail so the priest knows what kind of sin it is, okay? So to give an example, um, if you just say, um, I was selfish, that's too generic. You have to say something like, I stole $10 from, you know, you can't just confess I stole $10 by saying I was selfish or I was greedy, right? That's too generic. Or if you say, um, I, I was lustful, right? Well, you have to say specifically what it was because lustful can mean all sorts of things, right? So you can say, well, no, I was um, kissing my girlfriend in a way that was you know, inappropriate and inappropriate touching or something like that. Or I looked at impure images or I, I entertained adulterous thoughts about someone. You have to confess your sin in sufficient detail so the priest knows what kind of sin it is. And then you say the number of times as well as you can remember. Many of the times you can't remember the exact number of times you committed a sin. And then you do your best to say approximately how many times. And the reason for that is because you're not being forgiven just some amorphous kind of sin. You're being forgiven for each and every individual sin. And if you have been in a relationship with a friend and you did a whole bunch of things to break off that friendship, several different acts, you'd have to say, I'm sorry for each one. And then you'd feel forgiveness and your friend could come back and say, I forgive you for this, I forgive you for that, I forgive you for that, okay? So that's why we have to confess the number of sins. Now, if you can't remember, you know, often it's been too long since your last confession and you can't remember, don't worry, you give an approximation and everything that you forget about, that was just forgotten, that you legitimately forgot about, all of that will be forgiven too, okay? So in case you forget, about some serious sin, don't fear that you're not forgiven that sin. The only thing that you have to be worried about is if you come and you intentionally withhold a sin you remember distinctly and you decide not to confess it. If you do that, then the, the confession's invalid. It's just like going to your friend and, and, and only saying sorry for one thing, but just not being sorry for this other thing that you know was a really bad thing that you did to your friend. Huh? So as long as it's just something you've forgotten, right? Then have no fear. All your sins will be forgiven. Later on, it might come to you. I know this is one of the questions that people had. 
Later on, it might come to you and you'll remember that sin. You're like, oh, I forgot to confess that. That happens often, I know, as a priest, I know. And then what you do is you just make a note of it, maybe write it down on a piece of paper or something like that, and bring it up in your next confession. Just say, oh, this was already forgiven in a previous confession, but I forgot to confess it. So here it is, and here's the, the sin that I forgot about from my last confession. Okay, so that's how you do that. So then you're done with confessing your sins. And at the very end, you just say you, you express some kind of sorrow or sadness for your sins. And then the priest usually, if he has the time, will give you a little bit of advice about how to overcome one or other of the sins you confess, or maybe ask you some questions to help understand better what you're confessing. And then he'll give you what's called a penance. And what that is, is some kind of sacrifice that you have to do in order to show that you're truly sorry, not just in your in your eyes and in your heart, but actually in your deeds, in your works, that you're truly sorry for those sins. And so that's what the penance is for. Usually it's some kind of prayer. The priest might tell you to say a decade of the rosary or maybe a whole rosary, or he might ask you to specifically pray for certain people or maybe to be generous to the poor or something. So these penances are things that you agree to do in response to a satisfaction in some way for the sin that you've committed. After the priest has given you a penance, then he'll ask you to make an act of contrition. And that act of contrition can be something very simple, like Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner, <clears throat> or more elaborate. And you'll find usually inside a confessional, the act of contrition, a formal act of contrition written out. If you don't find that, you can always ask the priest to, to say it and you say it after him. He'll say one line, you repeat the line. Oh my God, oh my God, I'm heartily sorry, I'm heartily sorry, like that. Once you said your act of contrition, the priest will give you absolution. And once he's done with saying the absolution where he says, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he'll say, the Lord has freed you from your sins, go in peace. And then you can go outside the confessional. And then if you can right away, try your best right away to do your penance. If you can't do it right away, then do that penance sometime later on. But you can always receive communion, even if you haven't completed your penance, as long as you intend to do your penance in a timely manner. Okay, so that's a step-by-step -step guide on how you would go into confession. Some confessionals have a kneeler behind a screen and you go there. Others have the option where you can kneel and go behind a screen or go face to face and you go sit in front of the priest. You can do either one, whichever one you feel more comfortable with. I recommend if you feel very nervous and you're not sure that you're gonna be able to confess the sin if you're seeing the priest face to face that you go anonymously. So it'll make you more at ease, okay? Okay, let's see. <clears throat> Another, one last question here before I go to some of the, the, the questions that have come in from online. What can I do if I keep confessing the same sins over and over again? Okay, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, that's good news because the alternative is you're branching out and you're committing new sins and even <laughs> widening your scope of sin, right? It's good that you're not committing new and uh, novel sins. It's, it's better than, you know, committing more and more and more different sins. So from that perspective, the fact that you're committing the same old sins already is something, right? Um, but then the question is, I do want to overcome those same sins. And very often, they're the kinds of sins that happen through weakness, and we have certain kind of um, inclinations and sinful habits in our souls that prevent us from, um, you know, being 
as contrite as we should be. And so we commit the same sins over and over again. And usually what happens there is that um, through the practice of frequent confession, then um, you, you find that the frequency of those sins becomes less and less and less. Now, if you notice that you're committing the same exact sins with the same frequency, then you need to tell the priest that, and you need to ask for counsel or advice, like how to deal with that particular sin. Maybe the reason you keep committing the same sin is because you're not avoiding the near occasion of sin. And so the priest will tell you, okay, well, you need to, to do this to change your life, right? I often say the alcoholic has to be two steps removed, right, um, from the alcohol, right? He doesn't, it's not only enough for him not to go into a bar, he can't drive down the street, the bar is on, right? So you got to be two steps removed. And sometimes the reason we keep on falling into sins is because we put ourselves too close to the things that, that attract us, huh? and we fall out of weakness. But in any case, what you do is you tell the priest, I've been following the same sin habitually, I haven't improved at all, you know, since my last several confessions, can you give me some advice? And usually the priest can give you tailored advice specific to that sin, how to avoid that sin, okay? Another question that comes up is, how often should I go to confession and how often is too often, right? Um, well, a simple answer to that question is, anytime you're guilty of a mortal sin and you feel certain about that, you should go to confession as soon as reasonably possible, okay? I don't mean going at three in the morning and you know pounding on the door of the church, insisting the priest come out. Um, but as soon as reasonably possible, for example, the next time scheduled confessions are there. So anytime you have a serious sin, you should go. And there's no such thing as going to confession too often if you have a serious sin. Jesus himself said, if your brother sins against you seven times in one day, and seven times he be converted, forgive him, right? So in the same way, right, um, Jesus is willing to forgive us even if we committed seven times a mortal sin as long as we repented seven times in the same day. There's no such thing as going too often from that perspective. But it can happen that for the most part, our sins are venial. And then the question is, how often should I go to confession if I notice that my sins are, they seem to be almost always venial sins? What's a good frequency or regularity? Well, the bare minimum that the church tells us is you have to go at least once a year, okay? At least once a year to confession. And um, it's a little bit like saying like, okay, um, you have to at least go to your once a year doctor's appointment, right? Your physical or something like that, because that's just a bare minimum, okay? But I would say the church encourages us to go more often than that. How do I know that? Because the church has as a condition for obtaining a plenary indulgence that You've gone to confession within two weeks before or after the indulgence act. So if you do Stations of the Cross, for example, during Lent, and you want a plenary indulgence for that, then you have to go to communion within two weeks before or after, and you have to go to confession within two weeks before or after. So that implies what? That at a, at a regular basis, even as someone who, who is guilty only of venial sins habitually, should be going about once every four weeks. That's a good rule of thumb of how often should we go to confession. That way we're always eligible for a plenary indulgence, right? Because if you go every four weeks, you're always gonna be within two weeks before or after of any indulgence. So that's a good rule of thumb 
for people, devout Catholics, how often should I go to confession? Okay, all right. Now I think I can turn to some of the other questions. Let's see some of the ones that have come online. Great. Here's a question here. Can I confess online or via telephone, right? And a lot of people are worried about that now because, for example, COVID and other reasons, or maybe they're shut-ins and things like that. But the church teaches that you have to be in moral proximity in order to receive a sacrament. So the television is not a medium of grace. The internet's not a medium of grace. The telephone's not a medium of grace. You Sacraments are for real encounters, personal encounters between the person of Christ through the priest and the person of the penitent who's going for confession. And so there has to be a real and personal encounter that's, um, that's physical and, and um, somehow where there's some physical presence there. So the church teaches we can only go to confession in person. You could have a case of someone who's very hard of hearing and then they talk into a phone that amplifies it for the priest, you know, on the other end, but still they're physically there, right? On the other side of the screen or just, you know, physically nearby. Huh? So you have to be somehow in physical proximity of the priest in order to go to confession. Um, I remember that um, someone had asked a question similar to that. I'm trying to remember exactly how the story went, but it was, it was a case of someone who who wanted to have their sins forgiven over the phone. I remember now, I remember. So I was, um, I was doing a radio show for Catholic Answers. And when I was on the radio, a man called in, and fortunately there was a screener who was there, who, um, who had had too much to drink. And he wanted to do his confession over the, over the phone on the radio. It was, in some sense, it was very sweet because you think, well, this guy's not afraid at all of everyone hearing his sins. But of course they told him, no, that won't work. You can't do that can't do a confession over the phone. And, uh, and so the, the screener said, well, wait until you're feeling better, you're feeling more yourself, and then make an appointment to go to confession or go to confession to a, a priest directly. And they said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So fortunately, they were <laughs> persuaded to do that. Okay, um, another confession. How do I, for another question that's come in. How do I forgive myself of things I've confessed? That is a really common question where people have they um the first mistake in in the whole question is you think that you have to forgive yourself but that's the, the, the first point no god is the one who's forgiving you you have to receive forgiveness from god it's not about forgiving yourself you don't have the authority to forgive yourself and once you admit that you say to yourself no it's god i've harmed then we're in a better position to say okay I believe, even if I don't believe in my own goodness, I believe in God's goodness to forgive me, right? If we had to rely on our own goodness and to forgive ourselves, we would have no hope. But fortunately, we rely on God's goodness so that he can forgive us, so that we can feel in ourselves and experience in ourselves being forgiven. Now, there's a beautiful story in the a diary of St. Faustina about just this kind of thing. St. Faustina tells a story about how there was an elderly nun in her convent who had been tormented by sins of her past. And one day she found herself alone in a room with St. Faustina and she grabbed her by the habit and she said, Sister, um, I know you speak to Jesus. Ask the Lord Jesus if I've been forgiven these sins from my youth. And St. Faustina, she said, Sister, if you won't believe the priest, why would you believe me? 
And, and the sister, the, the elderly sister was very insistent and St. Faustina said, no, you have to believe in God's mercy and, and nothing would help her. She said, please ask Jesus. So St. Faustina finally pulled herself away and ran away. Well, that night Jesus appeared to St. Faustina during holy hour. And Jesus said to St. Faustina, I want you to go back to that sister. And I want you to tell her this, all those sins you, you committed in your past, in your youth, do not wound my heart as much and did not wound my heart as much as your present lack of trust in my mercy. And so St. Faustina went back to the sister and told her exactly what Jesus had said to her. And the sister started to cry like a little baby. So really that, that experience of not forgiving yourself, what it really means is I'm not allowing God to forgive me. I'm saying my sin is greater than God's mercy. And I don't trust in God to forgive me anymore. And we have to, that's the devil's last um, line of defense in keeping us from being reunited with the Lord. In the parable of, of the prodigal son, we see something very similar. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son wants to go back to his father as a slave. He says, in his own mind, he says, you know, the servants in my father's house are bound with bread. So I'll go back and I'll say to my father, father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight. He's going to confess his sins. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. That's the devil. That's not the spirit of Christ speaking in the prodigal son. And so he goes and he speaks to his father. And, and the father runs to him and embraces him and tries to show him every single sign that he wants him back. But he still does not believe his father wants him back. He still wants to go back as a slave, not as a son. And so he says to his father, Father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight. The father's pleased to hear that. But then he says, I'm no, not now worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him. He never actually gets to say the third thing because the father interrupts him. The father was not pleased to hear his son say that because the son is always worthy. A child is always worthy to be a child of their heavenly father. From the moment you're baptized, you will never be unworthy to be called a son or a daughter of God. And Jesus Christ did not die to purchase slaves. He died to purchase back his brothers and sisters. And so do not reject the, the Lord's mercy. Do not sin against the Lord by refusing to accept his forgiveness. If you feel that there's something that you confess, but you say, I can't forgive myself, really what that is saying is, I simply can't accept God's forgiveness. I refuse to believe he loves me that much. And so we need to reject that. That's a spirit of discouragement that comes from the devil. It's not the spirit of contrition that comes from Christ. We sometimes confuse contrition with discouragement because both of them are kind of sadness in response to sin. But discouragement is a sadness that makes us want to quit. But contrition is a sadness that makes us, gives us energy to start over and try again. And so it is that, that contrition always comes from Christ. Just remember, contrition starts with the C, contrition from Christ. And discouragement and despair starts with the D, it's from the devil. So don't ever confuse discouragement with contrition. 
We have to accept the forgiveness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us in order to forgive our sins. So let's see. Here's some other things here. Um, someone asked about it. What's a general confession? A general confession is something you should, you should do only by appointment. Don't just surprise a priest with a general confession. A general confession is when you come in and you want to confess all the sins of your entire life from the time you're a little, from the time of your baptism until the present. And that can be useful for different reasons. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas asks the question, should I reconfess sins that I've already confessed in the past? And St. Thomas says this, Look in yourself, in your heart, and your conscience. Do you still see an inclination in you to commit that sin? So let's say someone has committed a sin of anger, and, and they still see in themselves that I still have this tendency towards anger. Then he says it can be healthy to reconfess that past sin, to renew and strengthen and intensify your contrition, till you get to the point I talked about where you detest the sin and where you don't want to commit it anymore. And that's okay to reconfess those sins, and you can do that in a general confession. But if you see in yourself no inclination whatsoever, so let's say someone in their youth, they committed the sin of fornication or something like that, and they look at themselves, it's like, no, I could never imagine myself doing that again. I'm so sorry for that. I feel so repulsed by what I did. Then you should not confess those again, St. Thomas says, because that savors of a lack of trust in God's mercy at that point. So the only reason to reconfess a past sin is if you see in yourself that you still need to increase your confession, your contrition for that sin. And a general confession can be for that purpose. Okay. Okay. And it looks like we're, it looks like we're out of time here. Oh, well, I should conclude. I know there are many other questions here. Um, I do want to say that, um, that um, don't despair of making good confessions, of helping other people to make good confessions. The best advertisement you can give to people who you love, I know a lot of people want their friends and family to go to confession. The best advertisement you can give is come back from confession a better person. And so that they see that you love them more, you're a better spouse, you're a better parent, you're a better child. That will encourage them to say, hey, how did they get better? I wanna get better too, I'll go to confession. So the world is a mess right now, and the only solution is a spiritual one. We're not going to throw money at anything and fix it. Um, the solution is a spiritual one. And one of the things we're trying to do here at St. Michael's is to offer that spiritual medication for the whole world. Thanks be to God, we have now over 50 priests who are hearing confessions regularly. We have confessions every day here from 1 to 3 p.m. from Monday through Saturday. Or 1 to 4, 1 to 4, sorry, 1 to 4 p.m. And um, we have over, over 35 seminarians who are preparing to be priests, and we have even more coming in. We have several applications. We might have more than 40 seminarians um, starting in August. And so we need your help. We're grateful for your help, and the Abbot Circle is one of those ways that you can contribute in that way. More than anything, pray for us, because priests, seminarians are attacked by the devil in a special way. And make sure that you pray for us who will always be faithful witnesses to Christ and always be able to act in the person of Christ. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. And we take your intentions to our prayers every day. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Now, mighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Thank you for listening to the Abbott Circle Podcast. If you enjoyed listening or were spiritually nourished, please leave a review to help our podcast grow. Thanks again. God bless you.